Let's pray. Oh, thank you that you are such a good God and that you love us so much. And Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity, the, the privilege it is to come to you and worship you. And now we continue to worship as we study your word. So please guide us by your Holy Spirit as we dig in. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm just going to quickly go through what we did last week as a bit of revision. So it's so seven dispensations or time periods. So the first one is innocence, and that starts at creation with Adam and Eve and ends at the fall. So that's when there was no sin. That's why they call it innocence. The next one is conscience, and it started with Cain and Abel and ended at the flood. And if you remember what God said to Cain, sin is at the door, it's knocking, it wants to control you, but you must overcome it. So now we have a conscience, we need to decide to do what's right. That, so that era was, they call it conscience. You have to do what your conscience says is right. Overcome the sin. And that's Genesis 3, 8, 3 to Genesis 8.22. And of course, it didn't end very good. And so the flood came, and that was the end of that era. Then after the flood, we have this era starting with Noah and ending at the Torah of Babel, and it's called human government because God mandated human government the main purpose of the government was to protect human life. If a man is killed, then the animal or person who killed that man must also be killed. And then, starting from Genesis 12 through to Exodus 19, you have Abraham. And this is the era of or dispensation of promise. And God gives these unconditional promises to Abraham. And then we have the law, and that started when God gave the law to Moses, and that era finished when Jesus died on the cross because Jesus fulfilled the law. So that was the end of that era. And of course, we know the people failed that one as well. So in all these dispensations, there's failure. God gives people responsibility, and they fail. And the next one, of course, is the church age. We call it grace because it's the age of grace. And God has given us so much grace he's put the holy spirit in our hearts many blessings spiritual blessings that we have as you read in ephesians and this age the church age the age of grace will finish at the day of the rapture the church is gone then the millennial kingdom with the tribulation the millennial kingdom starts at the end of tribulation and then finishes at the end of the thousand years with the great white throne judgment so what I want to do today is actually go into chapter 4, and we're going extraterrestrial. We are leaving planet Earth. So if you're watching a movie or reading a book or watching a play, it's like a plot point. It's like a complete change. It's a turning point in the message that the book of Revelation presents. So. Just quickly go back to Revelation one nineteen. It says, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So, seen, it means to experience something by seeing it. It's not just a quick glance, but to actually experience it by seeing it. You're an eyewitness. So you know how we can say, oh, I, I see that, I understand that, but that's not what this word is talking about. This word means to literally see something. And Jesus has commanded John to only write about the things that he has seen that he has been an eyewitness to, that he has actually experienced. So this means that John had to actually be on the scene. He had to be an eyewitness to what he wrote down. And this applies to the whole book. Of Revelation. So this is interesting, isn't it? How could this be? How could it be possible that John could see the future? Well, time is a creation of God. Time and space are creations of God. So it's happened previously in other places in the scriptures, uh, Ezekiel and that. So God is able to propel someone in time into the future. That's no problem for God. He can do that. So this is the key to understanding the book of Revelation because over and over again, John keeps saying that he looked and he saw and he heard. It's an eyewitness account of future events that Jesus took John to 
so he can look and hear and see and then tell us. He wrote it down for us. And you'll see that phrase repeated over and over again. I heard and I saw. Now, chapters 2 and 3 give us John's vision of the church age, the age that John was in. That it is the things which are, and that's present tense. So we are in the present tense right now. We are in the church age. We are still in the church age. John was in the church age and it's still going today. So this dispensation or this era is still in place, but it's rapidly drawing to a close. So when God says the things which are, he's talking about this present age or era where the church is dominant, the church is present. And we have the letters to the seven churches. So it's all about the church. That's what this dispensation or era is all about church age or the age of grace so that's the and the things which are now remember last week we talked about the summary of earth history as broken down into the different ways God communicated to man or the seven dispensations so we've just gone through chapters 2 and 3 that's the age of grace and it's been divided into seven different stages or phases as represented by the seven churches so we've And we've also learned that we're in the last of the seven stages of church history, the Laodicean church. And this is also about to end, I believe. It's coming soon. Why do I say that? Because of Israel. Israel is a nation again. It has been for almost a full generation. We don't know what that is, but the way that the events around the world, the geopolitical environment, the financial environment, it's all pointing, um, it's all ripe for end times fulfillment. So, now we move on to the next part of verse 19. And the things which will take place after this. So, part one was, write the things which you have seen. That's chapter one, where Jesus reveals himself to John. Part 2 was in the things which are, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. And now we come to, and the things which will take place after this, or after these things. It's metatelta, after these things. And that's really important. That word metatelta is really important. So now we're going to skip over to chapter 4. And guess what we see in chapter 4? It says, chapter 4 verse 1, after these things, Metatelta, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this, Metatelta, after these things. So, the Greek words Metatelta, after these things, are repeated twice in this verse. So, if you're Bible student, you'll be thinking, hey, I've seen these words before. I've seen these words in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, where it gives the outline of the book of Revelation. This must be the place where things change. So here is the change. Here is where the church is taken out of the world. Now we're not talking about a building or an organization or a denomination. We're talking about true believers. We're talking about those who have asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins, accepted Jesus' pardon for us, received it as a gift, and therefore we are saved. We have repented, we have asked him for forgiveness, and we are saved. That's the requirement to go up in the rapture. That's it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, this is a plot point where the church goes extraterrestrial. This says, come up here. And this is the focus of what I want to talk about today. And the word come up, it's anaba in the Greek. And the basic meaning is spatial, meaning a change in location. So, God is saying there's going to be a change of location. And the meaning of the word in the lexicon there is to rise from the depths to the heights. It is used for climbing aboard a ship 
or mounting a horse or climbing a mountain. For us, we're going from earth to heaven. We're going up. We're changing our spatial location. We're changing where we are. Now moving on to verse 2. Revelation chapter 4 verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now the word translated immediately is euthios, and it's a word that was used to describe a rescue at sea. And it means an instant rescue from mortal danger. So here is John, and he's saying, I was instantly rescued from mortal danger, and then I was in the Spirit. And I found myself in the Spirit. That's basically what this verse is saying. I was instantly rescued from mortal danger, and was in the Spirit. So in other words, one moment, John was on the earth, on the island of Patmos, and the next, he was in front of the throne of God. Now a bit about John, I found this quite interesting. It's about God's providence and about the way he looks after us. The Romans sent John to the island of Patmos when he was about 85 years old, and they expected him to die there. They tried to kill him, and if they just chopped his head off with a sword, he'd be a martyr, and he would just cause more people, it would draw people to the faith. And so they just wanted him to die quietly somewhere where no one would see him, and he'd just be forgotten. So they put him on this penal island, or prison island, of Patmos hoping that people would just forget about him. And they only sent the worst, most violent criminals to this island. So you're an 85-year-old man going to this island where you've got these really violent criminals, and the Romans are probably thinking, "Ah, those criminals are not John off in a day. They can do what we couldn't. But you know what happened? Within a few weeks, John had led a bunch of the worst of them to Christ, and they became his bodyguards. (laughs) And they looked out for John. And then more and more of these violent criminals became believers in Jesus Christ. So that's where John was when he wrote the book of Revelation. And then God time-traveled him into the future to be an eyewitness of the future events that God was showing him. And he's written them down as the book of Revelation. So back to Revelation 4 verse 2. So John says, Immediately, after he's been rescued, what's the first thing he sees? It's the throne of God. And in this case, it's the Father sitting on the throne. Now, is that exciting for you? It is for me. And this tells us that the first thing we will notice when we get to heaven, now regardless of your beliefs, whether you believe in a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, A-mill, whatever, Look, when we get to heaven, all Christians believe that there's going to be a judgment and all Christians believe that we will stand before the Lord. Somehow, they just have different ways of getting there. But when we get there, the first thing we will see, the first thing we will notice is the presence of God, God sitting on the throne. And it reminded me of that verse in Corinthians where it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. So there are many wonderful things about heaven, like streets of gold, reunited with friends and family who died in Christ. The tree of life, angels, lots of fun things to go and have a look at. But nothing is going to compare to being in the direct presence of God. We will never be bored or want to leave. We are going to be continuously overwhelmed in a good sense and completely fulfilled. This is what God created us for. This is the fulfillment of the marital intimacy. The marriage is a picture of our relationship with Christ and we have that intimacy. This is the fulfillment of that. This is much greater. So God created us to know him and to love him, and it's really only in his presence that I am complete, and that you will be fully complete. And you'll finally understand why God made you, and it's for a relationship with him. We do understand that now, but I mean fully understand. 
Now, I'm going to go and show you some parallels between what is written here and some other verses in the New Testament. So, theologians have called this event the rapture, because the Latin word meaning caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is rapture, and therefore we call it the rapture. But the New Testament is written in Greek, and the Greek word used for being caught up to meet Christ in the air is hapezo, which is the word for pickpockets. It means to snatch something with stealth. So if you're walking along and, and your wallet's stolen, you don't know that it's been stolen, so God is going to snatch with stealth. So this is pretty awesome. Jesus is going to come down to the clouds, not to the earth, and then snatch us away with stealth. We're going to be snatched out of this world. And as I've spoken before in 1 Corinthians 15, it's going to happen in in a, the shortest period of time, like an, the word is atom, very, very, the shortest period of time. It's so quick. The world won't know it, hit it. So I'm just going to read First Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And you remember... In chapter 4, verse 1, you saw, you heard about the trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So there's that word caught up that we're talking about, the hapizo or rapturo, the pickpocket. Okay, so we can call the rapture the great snatch. If you want to call it that, the great snatch. So the first verse we want to look at the New Testament is John eleven twenty five. Now, this was an eye-opener for me because I hadn't thought about this verse as referring to the rapture. So it's John eleven twenty five and 26. And it says, Jesus said to her, this is Jesus talking to Mary after Lazarus had died, and he's about to resurrect him physically, or resuscitate him more accurately. So Jesus said to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And verse 26, And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, in verse 25 it says, He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. In other words, those who die in Christ will be brought back to life at the resurrection. Does that make sense? That's pretty standard, and you know that's comforting from Jesus to say that to Mary, whose brother has just died. But verse 26, think about that. Just have a look at it for a second. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. What is the only thing that that can refer to? Some people, in verse 25, will die believing, and they will live. They will be resurrected. But there's going to be some people who will live, who are living, who are believing, and they will never die. It's the rapture. It can only be the rapture. That's what the rapture is. Those, the believing people living in that last generation, will be taken up, caught up. So there we go. We have the rapture in John chapter 11, verse 26. So Jesus hadn't announced it. No one had ever revealed it. It's not in the Old Testament. which Paul called this a mystery later on. But Jesus said that there would be some people who would believe in him, be alive, and yet never die. So again, this can only refer to the generation alive at the rapture. The great snatch. So remember... There's only one thing appointed to us unless we're in the rapture, and that is, we die. That's nice, isn't it? Hebrews 9.27, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So now we know that we'll be resurrected as believers, but we die. But Jesus says that there are some who live who will never die. And as I said before, with what's happening in Israel, I think that it's real a very real possibility that 
we could be the generation who will be caught up. So I don't know you guys, I'm getting pretty excited about this. Now, talking about death, yes, we're appointed to death, but do we have to fear death? Well, what does 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8 say? So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So death for the Christian in the New Testament is called what? Do you remember? Sleep. Very good. Sleep because we don't actually die. We are just transported from one state of being to another. If we're not present on the earth, then we are present in heaven with the Lord. There's no soul sleep. It's just a straightaway spatial transformation where we're going from earth, our spirit and soul are now in heaven. Yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So again, death for the Christian is nothing more than being transported into the presence of God. There's nothing more glorious, and personally, I'm looking forward to it. But at the same time, I'm looking to make the most of my time here on earth so I can bring as many to Christ as I can, and I can influence as many people towards holiness as I can. Now, the next verse I want you to look at is John 14, verses 1 to 3. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So. Where is Jesus preparing a place for us? In heaven. So what's Jesus doing right now? He's in the middle of a heavenly building program. He's in the middle of a building program and he's preparing a place for everyone who believes in him as saviour. And when it says in verse 3, and if, that word if is better translated since, and it's not, if, maybe, it's if, since I go. Since I go and prepare a place for you, he will what? He will come again and receive us to himself. He's going to come and get us and take us to where he will be, in heaven. So what does that remind you of? Jesus coming from heaven and taking us away to be with him in heaven. Again, it's the rapture. So I just want to put this little note in like I've done it a couple of times. There's godly men and women who differ on their interpretations of end times events and especially the rapture, and I respect them. Some people think the rapture is going to happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. That's called the post-tribulation rapture. However, as you can see, I'm quite convinced in my own mind that based on biblical reasons that I've read that it happens before the tribulation and the church will be spared from the tribulation but I'm not putting down people who don't believe what I believe I do respect them and so just to to let you know that okay now I'm going to look at two biblical reasons to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture that means the rapture was before the seven year tribulation period and these two reasons can be found in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. And there's two reasons for studying this. One is because this happens at the end of the tribulation. And so as we learn about this event, we're actually learning about things that happen in the book of Revelation. And it helps us to understand why I think the rapture needs to happen at the start of the tribulation. So let's just read a few verses in Matthew 25. So I'll read verses 31 to 34 and 41. The actual passage is from 31 to 46, but to save time, just reading some of it. So Matthew 25, 31 to 34. And the question I want you to ask yourself is, what is the first thing that Jesus does, or one of the first things that Jesus does when he comes back to earth? 
in his second coming when he physically touches down on the Mount of Olives. So, Matthew twenty five thirty one. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations, that is, all Gentiles, all the non-Jewish people groups, will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me. And this is skipping down to verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, you're wondering what's happened to the nation of Israel? Well, if you read Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 34 to 38, it tells you that the Jewish people also be judged in a similar way, but in a different place. There's a segregation. But coming back to here, this separation of the peoples into the righteous and the unrighteous, the sheep and the goats. If you want to learn more about it, from the Old Testament perspective, you can read Joel chapter 3, 1 to 3. It tells you where it will happen and it gives you more insight as to the nature of the judgment, how God is going to judge and on what basis. But we don't have time to do it now. So what's happening here at the second coming of Jesus? When Jesus physically returns to the earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, he will judge each Gentile person individually. The Gentile individuals who have put their faith in Jesus and received his pardon for their sins, these are called the sheep, and they will go onto Jesus' right hand side. However, those individuals, Gentile individuals who did not receive God's pardon for their sins, will go to Jesus' left, and they are called the goats. And the Jews will be judged separately. So, This is an event called the sheep and goat judgment that happens when Jesus physically returns to the earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, let's consider where these two groups of people go. As we read, it says that the sheep, the Gentile believers, inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. So what kingdom is it? Where is this kingdom? Well, if you ever look at the sheets I gave you with the dispensations on it, what comes after the tribulation? according to the book of Revelation. It's the Millennial Kingdom. So the kingdom that these people are going to go into is the Millennial Reign, the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. It's called the Kingdom because Jesus rules. Jesus is the King. Now, Jesus said when he was on earth that the Kingdom is within you. And it's still true today. The kingdom is within us. But when Jesus comes back, the kingdom will be all over the earth. The Old Testament says his glory will fill the earth. So why can I say that? How can I say that Jesus isn't, in a practical sense, the king of the earth right now? Well, if we go to 1 John 5, 19, it says, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the sway of the evil one. And Ephesians 2 verse 2 says, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So when Jesus physically returns to the earth, Satan will be locked up for a thousand years, says in Revelation 21 to 3. The world will no longer be under the sway of the wicked one. Jesus will be ruling and reigning on the earth with a rod of iron, says in Psalm 2. And this is the kingdom that the believing Jews and Gentiles will inherit or be granted entrance to. This is the reward for being a believer during the tribulation period. So again, what comes after the tribulation period? It's the thousand-year millennium. It's the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. So those people who are believers, at the end of the tribulation period, those Gentile believers, 
and Jewish believers who survive the tribulation will be blessed with entering the kingdom of God on earth. So no more corrupt governments, no more lawlessness. Jesus will restore the planet so it will be like the Garden of Eden again. And if you remember, if you go back to the Gospels, guess what the disciples were looking for and what the crowds tried to do a couple of times. They tried to get Jesus and make him the king. They were looking for this kingdom back then. But it's not here yet. It's coming. It's a thousand year rule and reign where Jesus rules on the earth and he physically rules the earth. Now going back to Matthew 25, if the sheep, the believers, go into the kingdom, the thousand year rule and reign of Jesus Christ, what happens to the, the goats? Well, they're cast into hell. They're cast into Hades. And they await their judgment of condemnation at the great white throne judgment, which happens at the end of the thousand year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And after being found guilty of breaking God's law at the great white throne judgment, they will be condemned and cast into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels and will stay there for eternity. That's Matthew twenty-five forty-one. So, now we come back to our question, what does this sheep and goat judgment have to do with the rapture of the church? So I've taken some time to explain the sheep and the goat judgment. How does this show that the church could not be here on the earth at the end of the tribulation period? Well, there's two reasons. First, if the church did go through the tribulation and only get raptured or caught up at the end, then there would be no distinction between Jew and Gentile. It would be like it is now. With Jesus having broken down the middle wall of separation, the law between the Jew and the Gentile, we are all one in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. And you read that in Ephesians 2, 11-18. So what this means is that in the church age, there are only two groups of people. There are believers and non-believers. There's only one criteria for going up in the rapture, and that is, are you saved? You can be a Gentile convert or a Jewish convert, but you are still part of the church. One church. So what this means is that the rapture, both believing Jews and believing Gentiles, will be going up together. So being a Jew or Gentile makes no difference in the church age. So there's no segregation, there's no separation. Now, in saying that, God has not abandoned his covenant people Israel. Romans 11 says that he has put them aside for a while, he's temporarily blinded them, so he can use the church. But once he's finished using the church, he's going to remove the church and then go back to using Israel. And we're going to see that in later sermons, as you go back to Daniel. God will once again use his own people Israel to be a light unto the world. And again, this is evidence that the church has already been removed from the earth and taken up to heaven. So again, come back to this thing, why can't the church be here on earth at the end of the tribulation period? Because if it was, there would be no distinction between Jew and Gentile. However, what do we see in Matthew 25 with the sheep and goat judgment? We see the Jews and Gentiles as being separate with the sheep and goat judgment, all the nations, that is all Gentiles, all the non-Jewish people groups, will be gathered before him. The nation of Israel, well, if you read Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 34 to 38, it tells you that the Jewish people will also be judged in a similar way, but in a different place. Now, what we see in the tribulation period, what we will see as we go through is that God works through the nation of Israel to reach the world with the gospel. And there will be, again, the separation between the nation of Israel and the Gentiles as the nation of Israel again worships at the temple and follows the law of Moses. And that law of Moses causes that separation because they're not allowed to do lots of things. The laws about clothing and food and all those things are designed to separate the nation of Israel from the Gentiles. Now we come to the second reason that the sheep and goat judgment shows that the rapture must happen before the tribulation and not at the end. And this time it's all about who goes into the kingdom, who goes into the thousand year millennial rule and reign of Jesus Christ. So there's two types of people who will go into the kingdom. There's the glorified people who have received their glorified bodies, they've 
died and resurrected or been raptured and received their glorified body. And then there's those who have not received their glorified bodies. These are the believers who survive the tribulation, both Jew and Gentile, and they will go into the kingdom as mortal beings. So the first group, the glorifieds, this includes, and it's on the screen there, those who are raptured and those who died in Christ during the church age. So we will enter the kingdom in our glorified bodies. The Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the end of the seven-year tribulation period and will enter the thousand-year millennial reign in their glorified bodies. The tribulation saints, the ones who were martyred by the Antichrist or died in those plagues, will have been resurrected at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And they also will enter the thousand-year millennial reign having received their glorified bodies. So there's going to be a lot of us in the thousand-year millennial reign in our glorified bodies, like the angels, not marrying or giving in marriage, not having kids, just serving Christ and having that beautiful relationship with God. With no sin nature attached to us, which would be fantastic. And this awesome body, that new body that God's got for us. Now the second group, those who enter the kingdom, is those who have not received the glorified bodies. And as we just read in Matthew 25, it's the sheep, those righteous or believing Gentiles who survived the tribulation will enter, as well as the believing Jews who survived the tribulation. So initially in the thousand-year rule reign, in the millennial reign, every mortal human being will be a believer or unbeliever or both. Sheep and goat judgment. All the unbelievers have been cast into Hades or hell. The only people who are left are believers, and they go into the kingdom. So the first generation in the millennial reign, all the mortal people living there, initially, the very first generation, they will all have to be believers, because all the unbelievers have been removed. Okay? All the mortal people living there in the millennial reign, initially, the very first generation, they will all have to be believers because all the unbelievers have been removed. However, those people with their mortal bodies, they'll get married and they'll have kids, and their kids, their children, will have to make up their own mind about whether they choose to follow Jesus or not, whether they choose to accept his gift of pardon and forgiveness for their sins. And the Bible clearly says that some will and some won't. And the Bible also clearly tells us that there will be a rebellion at the end of the thousand years when Satan rounds up or gathers all the rebels, those who are faithful to him, he tries to attack Jesus, but then Jesus destroys them by running a fire on them. That's Revelation 20. So what this means is that Scripture is very clear that there will be unglorified or mortal believers that go into the kingdom, the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. So this works good with the pre-tribulation rapture. So again, we're trying to get the sequence of events here as well. Try and picture this in your head. The church is taken away, and in contrast to the thousand-year millennial reign, all the people that go into the tribulation are unbelievers, because all the believers have been snatched up. So all the people who go into the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, all that's left are the unbelievers. But again, they have kids, and their kids have the choice to believe or not believe, and those who go into the tribulation also have the chance to repent. And the Bible says that multitudes will repent of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, some of these will make it through to the end of the tribulation. Those believers who survive get to go into the millennial kingdom. And those who are not believers... Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so the only people who go into the kingdom are believers. And so it works good. The pre-tribulation rapture works great. It explains it really well. Because at the millennial reign, just before that, you have the sheep and goat judgment. The believers go in and the unbelievers are all taken away and they go to hell. 
Now let's swap that around. Let's say that the church does go through the tribulation. Are you following me? Now we're going to pretend that the church does go through the tribulation. This is the post-tribulation rapture view. What happens? Well, we know that at the rapture, all believers, both Jew and Gentile, go up. If the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation, Jesus calls all the believers up. They get their new bodies, their resurrection bodies, but they come straight back down. They don't actually go to heaven because Jesus' kingdom is on the earth. So if this happens at the very end of the tribulation, who's left on the earth in their mortal bodies? Only the unbelievers. Okay. Now the first thing we know from Matthew 25 that Jesus does is the sheep and goat judgment. And so on the left there's going to be all these unbelievers, but on the right, is there going to be any mortal person left who's a believer? There's no one there. It's empty. On the right-hand side, it's empty. There's no mortal person to go into the millennial kingdom. No mortal person to populate it. If there's no mortal person to go into the millennial kingdom, no one to populate it, there can be no mortal people who choose not to follow Christ, there can be no rebellion, and the whole thing falls apart. Does that make sense? Or have I confused you? So just quickly, I'll just revise that, what I've just said. If the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation, Jesus calls all the believers up. They get their new bodies, their resurrection bodies, but they come straight back down. They don't actually go to heaven because Jesus' kingdom is on the earth. And all the believers now have their glorified bodies. And at the sheep and goat judgment, which happens at the end of the tribulation period, also, there's no mortal believers there to go into the thousand-year rule and reign. All the tribulation survivors, the believers, have been taken up in the rapture, if the post-tribulation rapture view is true. And they come back with a glorified body, which leaves no mortal people to go into the thousand-year rule and reign. And therefore, there's no one to repopulate the earth during that time. And the Old Testament and New Testament both say that there will be mortals going into the kingdom, the thousand year rule on reign. In my reading, you know, those who hold to the post tribulation rapture view admit that this is a serious problem and they have no good solution for it. But my main reason for going through this, for trying to prove to you that the rapture must happen before the tribulation, not at the end, is 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. There's no comfort in going through the tribulation. If the church really did go through the tribulation, if the post-tribulation rapture view was true, then there would be precious few of us who would survive to the end. In fact, Jesus said that the tribulation would be so bad that if it was any longer than what it is, then nobody would survive it. Have a look at this. Mark 13, 19-20 For in those days there will be tribulation, such has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, who he chose, he shortened the days. Now as we get into the last chapters of the tribulation, like probably 15 and on, we're going to see some nasty plagues. Some really, really nasty, deadly plagues. And you'll see that it's just really, really hard to survive what's going on there. So literally billions of people would die gruesome deaths and most believers or tribulation saints will be martyred because they will be forced to make a decision to either take the mark of the beast or be killed. So the comfort isn't just that we get a resurrection body, but also that we escape the tribulation period, that we are caught up before it happens. And we covered Revelation 3.10 a few weeks ago. And that says, to the church of Philadelphia, Jesus is talking, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. 
And we learned that those who dwell on the earth is a reference to unbelievers. And the from the hour is ek, which means out of, to take out of. Also, I want you to consider that the tribulation has two main purposes. One, to judge the people of the world, the unbelieving people. Remember, Jesus takes the church up, which means that the only people left on the earth are unbelievers. They enter the tribulation and they are judged. Secondly, the other reason that God has for the tribulation is the nation of Israel. God is going to purify them, refine them, purge them, and he's going to work with them. And there's going to be a remnant that comes through. And that has nothing to do with the church. So, in summary, what I've learned from Matthew 25, the sheep and goat judgment, is that the church doesn't go through the tribulation for two reasons. First, because God deals with the Jews and Gentiles separately. And in the church age, there is no separation. And second, if the rapture happened at the end of the tribulation period, there will be no believers at the sheep and goat judgment to go into the millennial reign. No believers who still have their mortal body because they've all just been taken up and given their resurrection body and therefore prophecy could not be fulfilled. A reminder for the other verses, we saw Jesus refer to rapture in John 14.3 and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And again, this points to a pre-trib rapture because if the rapture is at the end of the tribulation, then we don't actually get to go to heaven. We get our glorified body and come straight back down. And we're on the earth for a thousand years. We don't get to enjoy this place that Jesus is preparing for us in heaven. Jesus also referred to the rapture in John eleven twenty-five to 26 because verse 26 says, And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So there will be a generation of people who live and believe and they will never die, as opposed to dying and then being resurrected. And now we come back to our text for today, which is Revelation 4, 1-2. After these things, Metatelta, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Metatelta. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So, the church age must end before the tribulation begins. Why? Because it says, after these things. And do you remember what the word immediately means at the start of verse 2? To be rescued from imminent danger. Uh, used to describe a rescue at sea. Instant rescue from mortal danger. So, there is a judgment coming. We need to warn the world that there is a judgment coming. That's what the tribulation is. And most of the world's population will die, including most of the tribulation saints. That is, those who go into the tribulation who do choose to repent and trust Jesus for forgiveness. But praise God that we are spared from the judgment. And that's what I'm trying to point out today. What the rapture is and when it happens because we can be truly excited and grateful that we are going to be spared this horrible judgment. So, I want to close with Luke 21, 34-36. It says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And that day, the tribulation, Come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Again, that's the unbelievers. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape these things, judgments, that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So, 
It's so easy to be distracted by the things of the world. And if we are, we will not be watching and the rapture, the great snatch, will catch us by surprise. We will not be anticipating it, not be ready. Remember also that those who dwell on the earth are the unbelievers. And in contrast, in Ephesians it says that we believers dwell in the heavenlies. Remember also that there is only one way to be counted worthy to escape judgment, and that is it's the blood of Christ. We need to be washed by the blood of Christ. We need to have our sins forgiven. We need to accept his pardon. And this verse also promises an escape from all these things, all these judgments, it says there that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things. Not just some. Another belief is the mid-tribulation rapture. But again, it says all these things. You escape from all these things that come to pass, not just some of them. And also I just want to encourage you to consider, to think about your glorious destiny, our glorious destiny, to stand before God the Father, before his throne, and also before the Son, who is sitting on the throne next to his father. So Luke 22, 19 and 20, as we come to communion now, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So I'm going to put that verse back up, Luke 21, 34 to 36, where it says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with the carousing, drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Father, I thank you that we can be counted worthy to escape all these things, not because of the good things that we have done, but rather for the gift of eternal life that you have given us, free of charge. Lord, you died in our place so that we wouldn't have to, and that we can be restored, our relationship with you could be restored, and we can be at peace with you again. You've reconciled us to yourself by the blood of the Lamb, the precious Lamb of God. So we just thank you for these things and thank you for your great and awesome promises. So we just yeah, commit us to you now and pray that you would just help us to worship you in song now and with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>